Hello there, church. It's so good to be with you. Happy week after Easter week. He's still risen. You know what I mean? Like, let's celebrate. So excited to be with you. Let's have a time of worship through music and dive into God's word together. So glad you're here. I was buried beneath my shame Who could carry that kind of weight? It was my tomb Till I met you I was breathing but not You 
Let's learn this. What is a hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to Him belong. Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us till the end? The love of Christ in which we stand.
thank you so much for being a part of our worship service and diving into worship with us. Well, man, as a church family, one of the things that we love to do for you is pray. And so if there's any way we can be a resource for you, we'd love to pray over any of your concerns. You can text us at 97,000, any of your prayer requests, and we'd be honored to pray for you. Well, um, if you would be interested in learning more about the ministries that we have at ABF, please go ahead and check out our website. We've got things for youth. We've got things for senior adults and everywhere in between. So go to our website and check out all the resources that we have for you. Well, the only way that we can continue making videos like this in our ministry on Sunday mornings and throughout the week is through uh, your generous donations. So if you would love to give to us, we'd uh, appreciate it if you just go on our website and hit the Give tab and uh, support our ministries. That would be a huge blessing to us at ABF. Well, before we jump into our message, I'd love to just offer a prayer to everyone here online listening. Father God, we love you so much, and we are grateful for your presence in our lives, and you are at work in our lives. No matter where we're at, God, you are there, and we acknowledge that. So Lord, as we come to hear your word, God, would your truth resonate in our hearts, souls, and minds. God, speak to us. May your Holy Spirit do a work in us. Uh, prepare us for what you want to teach us. We love you. And we pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, hello again. So good to see you. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. As I mentioned, I'm glad you're here. Let's, uh, let's, let's dive into God's word together. What do you say? Uh, my title today is Once and for All. Once and for All. That's actually the title of a Lauren Daigle song. It is a song that is one of my all-time favorite agape songs. Josh, what's agape? Well, if you haven't been around the church uh, for a longer period of time, I used to be the high school pastor here at the church, and I had the um, very great privilege of being a part of a ministry called Agape. It was our high school students. We had a worship choir uh, band that was kind of used as an outreach ministry. We'd travel around California, sometimes Arizona, and we would go to places like rescue missions and women's shelters and drug and alcohol rehab facilities. And we would just put on little worship services with our band slash choir, lots of worship music, a little bit of God's word being taught. Amazing, amazing ministry. And Once and For All is uh, a song that we would do, as I said, one of my favorites that we would do, a great song with some great lyrics. And those lyrics for sure hit differently depending on the venue that we are in. When we were at a drug and alcohol rehab facility with people who are dealing with addiction, the lyrics help me to lay it down. Oh Lord, I lay it down. Let this be where I die, my Lord, with thee crucified. Be lifted high as my kingdoms fall once and for all. Incredibly, incredibly powerful. Uh, man, we had some amazing worship sets and experiences out on the road. I'll tell you, there's nothing better than uh, looking out into the audience and seeing this gigantic dude all tatted up, 
just bawling his eyes out in worship to the Lord. Just the coolest, coolest stuff. Uh, as I mentioned, I entitled my message today, Once and for All, and I immediately thought of the song, and as I've been kind of working through it over this last week or so, I've come to a realization about that phrase in the English language, once and for all. Really, in America today, once and for all is not used literally. At least that's my understanding when I hear the phrase. It's not a literal thing. In American culture, it kind of has a lot less to do or nothing to do with the word once and really just focuses on the end part, the for all. Really, I would argue, I would contend that today that phrase for all intents and purposes just means finally, just finally, once and for all, finally. Again, no once, the one-time thing, not really an issue. Uh, again, that's maybe how I hear it. If you disagree, send me an email and I won't respond. That'll be great. Uh, but that's what I was thinking about. And uh, not that I care all that much. I'm not like this. Oh, we got to get back to the roots of what words actually mean and phrases. I don't really care. Uh, I just think it was worth an observation and wanted to make that observation as we start. Because today, as we're talking about once and for all, I mean it in the most literal sense possible. The once being pretty focal as you're going to see as we dive into God's word today. So let me pray and we're going to get into scripture together. Let's pray. Dear Father, um, Lord, we are thankful for another day. We're thankful for another opportunity to use media and video and the interwebs to dive into your word together, uh, to be together over the internet. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would just speak, that you would open up your word, that it would come alive, that you would say what you need to say today. Um, Lord, thank you that you are good, that your Holy Spirit moves uh, despite the fact that I am filming this in advance, uh, and yet you're still going to use it, and you're still going to move how you do. It's amazing. Uh, Father, we need you to do that. I ask that you would be very present um, right now. We love you. We uh, are thankful for your word. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. If you would, turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 9. If you've been following along with us, I really hope you've been enjoying the book of Hebrews as we've been going through together. I'm sure there are some of you that might say, ah, it's been a little bit long at times, and I might agree, I might not uh, agree, depending on if my boss is in the room or not. I'm just kidding. Um, but man, how cool has it been for kind of this build up to Easter, right? We've been going through the book of Hebrews. We've been learning about the old covenant. We've been seeing how Jesus fulfilled and replaced so much of it. And then we come into Easter time and it like all comes together in this amazing thing. I don't know if Pastor Scott planned it this way from the beginning, but this Easter season has been so cool because of our study in the book of Hebrews. Hopefully you felt the same way. I have definitely felt that uh, this past week and a half going through Easter season. So 
Today's section in the book of Hebrews is kind of a turning point. So maybe you're excited, maybe you're not. But really, we're kind of completing the nitty gritty, right? It's been quite heady. There have been multiple times when we've had to like read through sections a lot and been like, what does that even say, right? A lot of that, our author has been making the argument that Jesus fulfilled the messianic prophecies, fulfilling, uh, bringing to completion the old covenant and replacing it with the new covenant Um, so we've been doing that. And as I said, it has been very, very heady, but fear not. We are about to move into kind of like the heart part of the book next week. (laughs) So one more section where we just get to kind of get into some, uh, some dense, good stuff. But like I said, today we are culminating the heady section of Hebrews once and for all at least we are talking about once and for all. So have we talked about the fact that Jesus's sacrifice and death on the cross was a once and for all payment for our sin? Yes, we have talked about that. However, by this point, if you've been along with us for the ride in Hebrews, you've seen that the author of Hebrews kind of brings back topics up again. It's not just a one-time talk about it thing and then dismiss it. He will bring things up over and over and over again. He'll build on things. He'll add things to it uh, and just kind of add nuance. And really, he's just been building this beautiful uh, picture as we've been going along together. And today is no different. So yes, there will be some repeat info and I'll kind of acknowledge that as we go along. But there's a lot of good new stuff. And as I've been going through and preparing, man, the Lord has kind of weaved this thread of evangelism and spiritual conversation throughout. And so I'm excited to see how the Lord uses that in your life. Uh, It's been good for me this week as I've prepared for sure. So all that being said, let's dive into scripture together. We're starting with our first section, which I've titled Just Once, all capitals. Do you see that? Starting in chapter 9, verse 23. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. If you're wondering what he's talking about, go read verse 22. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all. At the end of the ages, that's referring to Jesus' first time on earth, at the end of the ages, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Okay, so those first few verses, if you were to go back, beginning at at verse 23, 
talk about how the temple was created as a symbol or an image of heaven, right? We've already talked about this. However, he says that Jesus has entered the real deal. He actually went to heaven. In verse 24, his purpose is to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Not new information. We've also already heard that Jesus is unlike the high priest of the Levitical system because it's not an annual thing. He's not sacrificing year after year. Verse 26 says he appeared once for all. Our title, once and for all, at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So we've discussed those things, but we haven't discussed a few things related to this little section. So, during our study of Hebrews, it's quite possible that you have asked the question, all right, why did God ever establish the original old first covenant to begin with? Why the Levitical system, the sacrifices, why all that? You may have asked that. My hope is that our time in Hebrews so far, you've had actually some pretty sufficient answers as to why God even did that to begin with. We've touched on a few, and I want to expand on a third that I don't think we've spent much time talking about. Um, And they're these. So we've touched on a few. We've touched on the fact that the old system was just a setup, right? The imperfect old system, just setting up, just pointing to the perfect new system that was to come through Jesus. We've also touched on the fact that the old system really nailed down the point that the penalty of sin is death. Like that gave a frame of reference for all of humanity that the penalty of sin is death and that we needed payment for sin. So those two, I feel like we've sufficiently talked about. Hopefully that's enough reason to even just give you a good answer. But there was another reason why God created the old system. It served a very real purpose. The old system, the sacrifices, served as a covering for sin. They served to maintain the covenantal relationship between God and man in the meantime of waiting for Jesus to come. There was no long-term solution for sin before Jesus, but there was a short-term solution, and that was the sacrifices. As we've mentioned before, the sin covering only lasted so long, right? Only until the next sin. I would uh, personally consider myself a pretty clean person. I am a shower minimum once a day type of guy. Uh, Most days, many days, end up multiple showers a day. I just cannot stand getting into bed, crawling into bed, like sticky, sweaty. It's just miserable. Hate it, can't stand it whatsoever. Uh, When I was first hired here at the church, um, my first thing that I ever did was I went on agape tour, what I was talking about earlier in the intro. Uh, It was a week-long trip with all a bunch of high school students going around, traveling around. We were sleeping on church floors. And that very first trip, we showered twice the entire week, the entire week. And this is with us like going outside, playing ultimate Frisbee, running around, being, you know, playing games at night, uh, out in the sun, all that. We showered twice. This was like my nightmare. I'm telling you, I changed things (laughs) like the next year we showered every day. Uh, But In my experience, uh, not only as a high school pastor, but given that that is my experience, uh, I am quite familiar with 
high school boys and their use of Axe body spray. My question for you is, what is the expected life of Axe body spray? Like how well, how long will that actually cover up musk and nastiness? And the answer is not very long whatsoever. Um, it is just a very temporary solution, not meant to be uh, <laughs> a shower as well. And uh, I know that that's kind of a silly illustration, but you kind of see where I'm going, right? It's not a perfect illustration by any means, uh, but the idea of covering up a sin problem uh, just doesn't work. The problem must be removed. And in verse 26, we see that Jesus did exactly that. He put away sin, obviously significantly better than just simply covering it up. But here's the thing, is the picture is not just of a little bit of sweat, slime, stink. That's not the picture. The picture would more accurately be described as cancer. And I am not trying to make light of this by any way, shape, or form, but if you were diagnosed with cancer and you went in and saw the doctor and he prescribed Axe body spray or a Band-Aid or any sort of medication that only masked the symptoms, you would leave never to return again, right? Because that does nothing to just cover it up. Cancer is a deep-rooted issue that needs to be treated and removed. Uh, our sin is a cancer that is leading to death. Now, again, I'm going to come back to, I know we have talked about this um, topic before. We've talked about the fact um, that Jesus' sacrifice was far superior to the Levitical sacrifices, right? I get it. However, the sacrifices did provide a covering. They did maintain the covenantal relationship, and that was one of the reasons for them. Okay, so the second thing in this section that is incredibly interesting, and uh, at least I find interesting and definitely noteworthy, is that this section is often cited in a conversation between Catholics and Christians, okay? So, um, I am not an expert on Catholicism. However, uh, I have found myself in conversations uh, asked semi-regularly, hey, what are some differences between Christianity and Catholicism? And I would say, uh, man, this section here kind of touches on one of the, one of the bigger ones. Uh, and again, I'm not claiming to be an expert, um, but my understanding is, is this. My understanding is that the Catholic view of the Mass, right, their daily service, which people are expected to be at weekly, the mass is viewed as a sacrifice. The mass is viewed as a sacrifice, and they use that terminology, which is propitiatory in nature. Propitiation means payment for sin, and they use that terminology as well. So the mass is a sacrifice that is propitiatory in nature. It comes alongside Jesus' death on the cross. So as you can see, if you put that much weight on the mass, on kind of that service, that gathering, you can see why attending mass is such a gigantic deal in the Catholic church. So as I've kind of been diving into this passage uh, specifically and how that relates to the mass, 
uh, as I've dove into that uh, over this past week, it seems to me, again, I am not claiming to be the expert. It seems to me that there's a little bit of variation in interpretation of even what those terms mean in regards to the mass. And so as you look at our passage today, um, given that there is most likely some diversity interpretation, it seems that some of the Catholic church believes that mass is so important that the forgiveness of sins is dependent upon it. Okay, you following me? Mass is so important that the forgiveness of sins is dependent upon it. At, in a way, mass serves as a perpetual offering of Jesus's death on the cross. You could say it's as if that Jesus is being crucified every time at Mass. That is the significance that is placed on the Catholic Mass. And it's interesting, if we look at just the symbols that are around, right here in the back of our church, I don't know if you can see it on camera, you probably can't, there's a cross. And that cross is completely empty. However, if you were to walk into most Catholic churches and see a crucifix, see a cross, Jesus or an image of Jesus would be hanging on that cross. The image is that Jesus is perpetually offering himself over and over again in the, in the mass participating in that. So again, not the expert, and my understanding is that there are some that would definitely contend that is more symbolic in nature for sure. But in light of the topic uh, and the passage that we're going into today, man, I absolutely think it's a conversation worth having. My intent is not to do any Catholic bashing whatsoever. I know there are plenty of people that would consider themselves Catholic that love, follow Jesus passionately, genuinely amazing. They just prefer more ritual, more liturgy. It's the tradition that they've grown up in. That's amazing. However, what I would say is I would say if you have a Catholic friend or family member, man, the next time you get together, that might be the start of a really cool conversation. Just asking, hey, how do you view mass and your attendance at mass in light of Hebrews 9 and 10 and the fact that Jesus' sacrifice was once for all? And just even like processing through that, I think could be really cool, healthy, beneficial, fun combo starter, next time family dinner, You'll do it. It'll be great. Uh, enjoy. So again, as pertains to this passage today and what we've already read, I think it's so important to be clear that Jesus's death on the cross was once and for all. It was absolutely a complete deal. There is nothing else that needs to be done outside of accepting that free gift of grace through faith alone. Accepting the free gift of grace through faith alone alone. He has done everything that is needed already. So moving on to the next section, we see that because of Jesus' once and for all sacrifice, we are unburdened once and for all. Turn to chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers have once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But 
In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay, so a couple of other refreshers that the author is giving us here. We've heard before that the Levitical system sacrifices were ineffective. And if you remember back a number of messages ago, I believe it was myself that actually talked about this verse four, how it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So here in this section, basically what he's saying is not only were the sacrifices of the Levitical system ineffective, but there was actually a harmful side effect to the regular Levitical sacrifices. They served as a regular reminder of sin, which caused a heavy burden. So, if you were to look there at verse 2 and talking about consciousness of sin, it is not that Jesus' once and for all sacrifice all of a sudden removes consciousness of sin, all of a sudden makes us unaware of sin. That doesn't make any sense. And I would actually say that's not what it's supposed to do. It's actually quite the opposite. As followers of Jesus, we should be so aware of God's holiness and how amazing he is that we are therefore equally aware of our shortcomings and our sin, okay? So what does it actually mean then? I would contend what is being said here is that there is a very real difference between an awareness and conviction of sin that then leads to a healthy sorrow because of our sin. There's a very big difference between that and awareness and a conviction of sin that leads to an unhealthy burden. Okay, a difference between a healthy sorrow and an unhealthy burden. And I think as we talk through it, well, the next question is easily, well, what does that even look like? What does that look like? And I would say is it comes down to relationship. It comes down to relationship. We briefly talked on this in the last section, but man, there is a gigantic difference between a personal relationship and an impersonal relationship. Like the difference between you, the one that you would have between a ki- you, yourself and a king and the relationship that you'd have between yourself and your dad. It is only because of Jesus' once and for all sacrifice that we have this changed relationship status. Think back to Good Friday when we talked about the veil being torn. The symbol is that. That creates the space for us to have direct access in a personal relationship with God. Might I contend that grace is transported on a relationship. (laughs) When I first wrote that, I thought, oh, that's horrible. And then I thought, oh, I have to use that. And then like initial thing that came to mind, now I can't get, uh, if you're a Friends fan of the TV show Friends, uh, Sandy, the Manny, uh, who talks about relationships and uh, can't get it out. Anyways, to say it in a less cheesy way, we're moving on very brief, really quickly, is grace flows through relationship. Grace flows through relationship. Think about it. It's true not only for us humans, it's true for God as well. On a human side, whenever I have a random baby come over to my house and throw food on the floor and wake me up in the middle of the night and scratch all the skin off of my wife's nose, I do not have very much grace for that baby that I don't know. 
However, little Holly, when she does those things, man, it's crazy how much grace I have for my own daughter because of the relationship that is there. And the same is true of God. We are saved by grace through faith. Faith is the starting point of this relationship that grace pours out of. So, through the lens of the old covenant, through the lens of the old covenant, that impersonal covenantal relationship, sacrifices are a scary reminder that you've messed up, you've wronged the king, and that you're going to do it again. On the other hand, through the lens of the new covenant, through the lens of this personal relationship, Jesus' once and for all sacrifice is this comforting reminder that you're loved by dad and you always will be. In the next section, we see that Jesus' sacrifice is replaced. Uh, Jesus' sacrifice replaced once and for all. Sacrifice isn't replaced. You get what I'm saying. Verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And then in verse 8, the author comes back in and he says, When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So this is actually a pretty simple section. It's quite bold when you break it down and see what he's actually saying, but it's very simple, very straightforward. So in here, the author is taking a passage from Psalm chapter 40. That's actually the meat of this entire section that I just read. He's taking that passage and he's telling the readers that is explicitly messianic and attributes those words to Jesus himself. Look there in verse five, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then he goes on to just quote David from the book of Psalms. So the question is, were these words true of David as well? Yes. These words were absolutely true of David, but he's saying that they're also true of Jesus and on a completely different level. Look here. So when David said these words, he acknowledged that the Lord cares more about our hearts than our sacrifices. He cares more about our hearts than our sacrifices. And then David openly says, I surrender to your will, God. But then with the same words, the author draws a connection to the new covenant when Jesus says these words, it comes and hits a little bit different. When Jesus says these words, what he's saying is that animal sacrifices were not God's final plan. They are ineffective, straight up. Jesus then also willingly offers himself up and says, I surrender God to your will. Really, it's kind of a picture of the same scene that we saw on Good Friday of Jesus in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. That's right. 
So on Good Friday, uh, I had the opportunity to share for a small piece of the service. Um, by the way, Good Friday, I've mentioned this before, is absolutely my favorite service of the year. Um, if you weren't there, I'm sorry you missed out. I'm going to give you a little taste uh, just because I don't want you to miss out completely, but best service of the year. I love it every single year. Uh, we were, what we were doing is we were talking about sacred symbols, and we talked about the symbols of the bread and the cup of communion, talked about the veil being torn. We talked about an olive tree. So the olive tree was actually my uh, topic that I got a chance to kind of dive into and dive into that sacred symbol. Uh, I had this nine foot olive tree here on the stage. It was pretty cool. People in the audience uh, had olive branches that they could touch and smell. And I challenged some to taste. I don't think they took me up on it. Um, but what we did was I just talked a little bit about olive trees and the symbol that that is and how... Uh, it makes sense and is worthwhile talking about and understanding uh, just the story of Easter and of Good Friday. So we talked about how an olive tree can grow at about 20 to 30 feet. They live a long time. Average lifespan of an olive tree is 500 years. They can live upwards of 1,500 years, pretty wild. Uh, eventually they die, and when they do, they just kind of fall over. However, the root system, the root system just stays alive, and a new shoot pops up out of the current root system. We talked about how there's a scripture that might be sparked by the word shoot. Uh, the prophet Isaiah talks about a shoot that comes up from Jesse. And uh, it's a messianic scripture talking about Messiah coming from the line of Jesse, from the line of David. And then after that, everybody's mind was absolutely blown when we talked about the fact that the Hebrew word for shoot is netzer, which is where we get the word Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, right? People were crying and jumping around and shouting. It was crazy if you missed it. Absolutely nuts. Uh, but what I kind of breezed past pretty quickly, um, so even if you were there on Good Friday, you might not have caught, there's a couple of things that I thought were significant in regards to our passage that we're talking about here today. Two things. Uh, the first thing is just kind of a logistical thing that's pretty cool to think about is if you think about the shoot coming up from the exact same spot as the previous tree, you could say that the Garden of Gethsemane looks pretty much exactly like it did 2,000 years ago when Jesus was there, at least as concerns the placement of the olive trees, which is wild to think about. Uh, they even say that one of the trees still in the Garden of Gethsemane is still original to when Jesus was there. Pretty wild to think about. The second thing that's significant as uh, concerns a shoot coming up from the exact same spot, we see here in our passage in verse 9, says this, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. Jesus, the shoot of Nazareth from the line of Jesse, knocked over dead the olive tree of the old covenant and shot up exactly in its place. The two cannot coexist at the same time. It is impossible. The new came up in place of the old. Pretty cool, right? And even cooler, the picture of the new shoot, the new olive tree, the new Jesus olive tree is eternal, right? And we get that picture from how old uh, olive trees can get. Just a really cool uh, picture there. All right, our last section, 
Checkmate once and for all, starting in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Are there any chess fans out in the crowd? Chess fans, chess fans, chess fans. I have watched the Queen's Gambit. That is the extent of my chess knowledge and really interest, if I'm being completely, completely honest. Uh, really what the author's doing here is he's playing a little bit of chess, kind of backing them, moving the pieces, backing his audience kind of into a little bit of a corner, uh, giving them a little bit of a dilemma to think through. And the dilemma is this. What he does is he quotes the prophet Jeremiah. We see the quote there in our text. Uh, and we see, and he quotes, where the prophet Jeremiah speaks about a new covenant that he will make with the people. Talks about their sins will be completely forgiven. And so the corner that he back, backs them into is basically this. So Jeremiah is your prophet, right? As he writes, Jeremiah is your prophet. You can't have Jeremiah the prophet without Jeremiah's prophecies, you just can't. So this new covenant that he's prophesied, you can't have Jeremiah without this new covenant. Oh, and by the way, Jesus perfectly fulfills. He is the fulfillment. He is this new covenant. So what he's saying is that you, can ha you can't have, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, you can have both Jesus and Jeremiah. You can have neither Jesus nor Jeremiah, but you can't have Jeremiah without Jesus. You just can't. It doesn't make sense. I actually think it's a pretty good argument. Uh, makes sense logically in my mind. Uh, and you might think, oh man, that was a good argument for these readers. Maybe that would be a good argument or a good line of reasoning or a good conversation to have with my Jewish friends, family, etc. today. Maybe not. So uh, the Tuesday before Easter, uh, we have our men's Bible study every Tuesday. And on that particular Tuesday, we had a gentleman from the organization Jews for Jesus. He came and put on a little Passover Seder. Uh, and man, it was amazing. Like it was crazy to see how in this Passover Seder that Jews all around the world uh, celebrate every year with their families still today. It was wild to see how Jesus like fit in and filled in the gaps of so many of these elements. Absolutely <clears throat> mind-blowing. Um, so very, very cool. I would highly recommend if you've never had an opportunity to do something like that, absolutely should. Um, the biggest things that stood out to me from that time, uh, again, aside from some of those cool nuggets about how Jesus just fits right in um, and filled in uh, some amazing gaps, 
were a couple of comments uh, that Josh, his name was, uh, that came from Jews for Jesus, Josh had to make about modern Judaism today in America. And I thought that they were incredibly interesting and would be helpful to pass along today in our time together. I think it makes a whole lot of sense. So uh, there are kind of two things that are differences from a Christian worldview, just how we see the world, uh, that I did not realize. The first one is this. He said, in American Judaism today, it is not based on the Bible. American Judaism, not based on the Bible. It's based on Jewish law. So how it kind of works is a modern rabbi would act really as a lawyer. And kind of the contention is this. If you're not a lawyer, you can't interpret the law. So by default, the rabbi becomes authority over scripture. Scripture is not the authority. Reading the Bible is not the authority. The authority comes down to the rabbi. What the rabbi says, his interpretation is the authority. So therefore, as we're talking about this, man, appealing to scripture, appealing to Jeremiah and saying, hey, what do you think about this passage from Jeremiah, how he talks about uh, the new covenant and Jesus fulfilling that? Uh, In a lot of cases, my understanding, a Jewish person would be like, oh, I'll talk to my rabbi. Like he's the authority. It's not necessarily going to Jeremiah. Very, very interesting. The second thing that I thought was also incredibly interesting is he said that Judaism is a religion of progressive revelation. A religion of progressive revelation. Judaism is always changing. Regularly, things are being added to and removed from Judaism. Kind of the main importance is for Judaism to stay relevant to the people. You catch that? For Judaism to stay relevant to the people. It's interesting. It even goes a step further. He says, God is not viewed as the ultimate judge. God is not viewed as the ultimate authority. The Jewish people are viewed as the ultimate judge and authority. Different, right? Different from a a Christian worldview, how we would see the world. When you talk about authority, it's neither scripture nor God as the ultimate authority. Really what it boils down to is the Jewish people and ultimately the rabbis are the authority. It all comes down to that. So all that to say is, uh, man, this argument that the author of Hebrews is making, I think is is pretty solid. However, I don't know if it carries much weight and might not even be an approach that's worthwhile. Really, the approach that might be worth having or the conversation that might be worth having is just asking questions about authority and truth sources. And what is authority? Is God ultimate authority? Is scripture ultimate authority? Is man ultimate authority? If man is ultimate authority, what happens when two men disagree? Like, where's the authority, the ultimate authority actually lie? Uh, Another good conversation to have and would encourage that for sure. So, I want to conclude by working backwards a little bit. I want to jump back up. We kind of tackled the end of that past section, and I want to jump back up to chap, uh, verse 11 very briefly. Uh, verse 11, that section is just revisiting some things that we've already heard, but wait for it, but wait for it. In the old system, it says there were multiple priests who would stand and they would repeatedly offer ineffective sacrifices. Okay, we know that. However, then in the new system, a single priest, that's Jesus, offered one once and for all sacrifice, which was completely effective. And then, 
And then he sat. And then he sat. See the contrast between standing and now Jesus sits? Verse 12, sits at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. It is not an if, but a when. Not an if, but a when. If you think about it, the imagery is pretty astounding. The imagery is of a battle commander in the middle of war, completely relaxed, sitting down, putting his feet up on a footstool. And to mix metaphors, it is the ultimate checkmate. It's making your once and for all last move, knowing that victory is coming and now letting the game play out. I like to picture as I think about it, man, this picture of Jesus is incredible. Like Jesus got the sunglasses on, sitting back in the recliner, feet up, waiting for the end patiently, knowing what is going to come. Pretty amazing. But the thing is, is it's not just a pleasant thought. It's not just a pleasant thought, even though it is quite pleasant. This should have huge implications for us here and now. It should absolutely impact how we engage the world around us. I'm primarily thinking about how we engage in evangelism with our friends, our family, those that we uh, are acquaintances, uh, regardless of where they are at on the spectrum of knowing Jesus, whether they're close Uh, don't want anything to do, even hostile, absolutely huge implications for that. Does it also have implications for how we uh, interact with our country, our local community, and politics? Absolutely, but I'm not talking about that here today. I'm primarily focusing on, like I said, I feel like the Lord has kind of woven this little uh, thread of evangelism in pretty cool. And here's the thing is because of this truth about Jesus once and for all act and him sitting down, our engagement in evangelism and sharing the good news of Jesus should not be fueled by fear, by worry, by desperation. It is quite possible that you think, man, everything is just going to crap. What in the world? Oh, I shouldn't say crap. <clears throat> It is quite possible that you think everything is going to junk, but man, we just need to remember this picture of Jesus with his feet up, chilling and reclining. The people that you're currently freaking out about, wondering, man, is there ever going to be any heart change? Jesus isn't freaking out about it. He's not. Uh, So Josh, what are you saying? That we should just like do nothing? Uh, like is, is like the no worry approach, just like sit back and sit on, sit on our hands and, and just do nothing. Not at all. And by the way, for clarification, uh, Jesus sitting down is not saying that Jesus is doing nothing. Is he confident? Is he patient? Is he waiting? Absolutely. But uh, remember, Jesus is sitting on a throne. He is ruling and reigning. I'm just saying he is sitting in comfort, knowing that the job has already done and just waiting for fulfillment. So very briefly, want to revisit chapter nine, verses 27 and 28. This is where we're going to end at today. Those verses say this, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We should be waiting eagerly. 
And to me, eager is not sitting around doing nothing. Eager absolutely means action. It's just that action done out of desperation and action done out of eagerness look completely, completely different. When you're evangelistic action, when you're evangelism, when you're uh, interacting with the world around you, when it is fueled by eagerness, you are excited at what they might gain. Excited at what they might gain. When your action is fueled by desperation, you are fueled by fear of what you might lose. You hear the difference there? But Josh, I don't feel either. I don't feel either desperation or eagerness. Uh, Truth be told, I'm just kind of indifferent. And man, I think that just comes back to our entire topic for today. Um, Eagerness should be rooted in Jesus once and for all sacrifice. Uh, Just this morning, I was over at a pastor gathering uh, for the Caneo Valley pastors. Uh, A bunch of pastors from the general area get together once a month. And I was talking with Matt Larson, a pastor over at Anthem Church, and we were just kind of talking actually about this passage. It had come up uh, in random conversation as we were talking about Easter, which was pretty cool. We were talking about this passage, and uh, he brought up uh, a really cool um, piece of this passage that I hadn't even seen or thought about said that there's two passages in both one in Isaiah 6 and one in Revelation chapter 1. And both of them are visions of Isaiah and John going into the presence of God. The similarities are they go into the presence of God. Both Isaiah and John in their visions were terrified. So unworthy to be in the presence of God. And that's when the difference comes is Isaiah was touched with a coal on his lips, if you're familiar with the passage. And that purified him. That made him clean. That made him holy and able to be in God's presence. However, John, in the exact same situation, there's no coal. He didn't need to be made holy because he was after the death and resurrection of Jesus. I just thought, oh my gosh, what an amazing picture for us here today because of Jesus's once and for all sacrifice, you and I are already good to go into the presence of almighty God. That is astounding when you think about it. We are already completely taken care of because what of Jesus has already done. How can that not make us eager to wait for him? Let me pray. Dear Lord, uh, Father, again, just thank you so much for your word. Um, Lord, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you so much for how you set it up so perfectly with the old covenant, with the new shoot coming up exactly in the spot. Jesus, once and for all payment for our sin, that we are now covered and good and ready to be in your presence is unbelievable. Lord, um, we love you. We're so thankful. And we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. The creation suddenly articulate With a thousand tongues to lift one cry Then from north to south and east to west, we'd hear Christ.
Hey church, again, thank you so much for being with us today. Hopefully you are having a fantastic week. If there's anything that we could be praying about, any questions about the message, any way that you wanna interact, let us know. We are here for you, we love you, and we hope to see you soon. Have a great day.